0: us and I ask that as Matt um, comes and and brings your scripture to us God that that our hearts and our minds would be open and that um, that our relationship with you would only grow deeper. And God, I ask all these things in Jesus name. Amen. Good evening how's everybody doing? Good all right, Sonia's doing good everybody else you're not really sure that's okay um, it's been a great and busy few weeks here in the life of sojourn. This is what I usually refer to as mission team season. Uh, most of you know that we're a church plant, and so we have partner churches from all over the country and for whatever reason, they all want to come at the same time of year probably because this is the best time of year to visit excuse me visit the city of Portland and so this is mission team season. Um, We had our last summer team here this week. It was 27 people, and so we did a city tour last week. You can imagine me leading 27 people through downtown Portland. That was a fun adventure. But they helped us do our kids' camp this summer, which really we couldn't do a lot of what we do if it weren't for their help. And so we're very appreciative of these what I call kingdom partnerships, and it's really a two-way street. They love on us. They encourage us. They support us financially. And we were able to uh, conduct our second annual kids' camp. We had 40 kids. This year, which is really a huge success. We had 10 kids, maybe. I'm a church planner. I like to round up. So we had maybe 10 kids last year. And uh, this year we had 40. And so I was praying for 20. And so God um, exceeded our expectations. And I really believe it's helping us build inroads into the lives of the families here in our community really it just shows a testimony that we have built trust over this last year. And so I told them I'm hoping to double by next year, so maybe we'll be at 80 kids next year. And they kind of looked at me with uh, exhaustion on their face and saying, well, maybe we'll have to bring more people than 27. And let us be mindful with the things that we're doing this summer and things like kids camp, that the Lord will produce fruit and that we can rest that our labor is not in vain. I know it's easy, especially for an outside group to come in and pour out all their time and energy for a week and spend money and think what good has it done the reality is they may not get to see the good that it's done and some of us in this room we may not get to see the good that it's done but God is working in our midst and so we can know that it was not in vain this week if you are new with us or this is your first time we are a young church committed to the gospel in the context of family living on mission and people will often ask us at the the neighborhood concerts and the festivals and outreach events that we're doing this time of year I say, what is it about sojourn? Can you tell me about the church? And if I had to narrow it down to one thing, and the longer I'm here, the more bold I'm getting in proclaiming this, I will simply say we are inviting others to take a journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus and to follow him faithfully in our city. So regardless where you are tonight in life, regardless how you came in here this evening, I'm inviting you to take that same journey with us, to learn what it means to follow Jesus and to follow him faithfully here in this place. Now, we're nearing the end of our summer series Around the Table, Joining Jesus in the Ordinariness of Life, where we've really focused our summer months on evangelism. And our hope from day one is that people would meet Jesus. We didn't come to start Sojourn just so we could start a social club or so that we could start just another nonprofit in our city. Our city has plenty of social clubs. Our city has plenty of nonprofits. But that we came to see people have an encounter with Jesus and to see their lives changed. And this has served as a good reminder for us that think about establishing churches and church planting, that's not the end goal. I think sometimes it's easy, at least for me, to get caught up like that is the end goal of seeing this this church and the kind of the weight of that being on my shoulders and seeing sojourn established. That is not the end goal. The glory and greatness of God displayed among the peoples of the earth, worshiping around his throne, that's what the end looks like. And so that, is a, that was a good reminder for me this week as I was preparing. So that is our end goal, that we see people going from death to life and that they're worshiping king jesus and so planting churches needs to start with that end in mind and so i know f- for some of you for ginseng students that are here again this week we're appreciative of you and a lot of your focus has been on church planting and kind of remember that 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 is not the end goal in those neighborhoods that you focused on seeing a new church start there but seeing people worshiping king jesus around his throne and for those of you that are part of sojourn and Eastbridge that are here visiting tonight let that be a reminder for all of us now many of us when we hear the word minister we think of something like what we're doing tonight we, we kind of think of a service in a, some kind of a building with some songs and maybe some teaching. Maybe there happens to be coffee. But ministry happens around tables throughout the week as you're present with people, as you listen to people, as you get a chance to share your story with people, and as you get a chance to invite them further into learning what it means to follow Jesus. Now, if you're part of our gospel community, hopefully you recognize those pieces, because we went through an e-book together. If you guys don't remember this, maybe we should reread through that e-book together, and those are those four or five components that we call discipleship here. And I was doing some math in my head. I'm not really good at math, but I I kind of was doing some numbers today, and over 100 people have been in my backyard around tables this summer. Now, of course, those outside teams have helped with that, but I, I thought, man, that is a highlight of my summer, that we've had over 100 different individuals in our backyard who are, and many of you have been in there, fellowshipping around tables. Because to me, that is where life and ministry is really taking place. Not so much what we're doing here tonight. You hear this probably every week now, but this is kind of our huddle where we get to come together and say, this is how the week went. Here's the place for the coming week. All right, you know, ready, go. And we go out. And so 100 plus people have been in our backyard. And I know that there's countless stories of you in here, people you've had coffee with, people that you've had lunch with, and where you are inviting people to join you at the table as well. And it is a reminder that we are the church not this building, not even necessarily what we're doing here tonight, that we get to be the church throughout our week. Now, tonight we're going to continue our series in the book of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 22, where we'll be in just a few minutes. So if you, if you have your Bibles, then I invite you to go ahead and turn there, or if you have the app on your phone, even today I was reminded that it's great that we put the words up here on our screen, but I think it's great if you have either a physical Bible or a Bible app on your phone, because one, it means you're probably reading it throughout the week, but it's also just different to have it in your hands, even if it's not actual pages, I look at it on my iPad, I'm able to underline things and highlight things or take notes or, or maybe even question what I'm saying. It's a great spot to say, I'm not sure if Matt preached that accurately. And so I just want to encourage you, if you don't have one to bring it, we do have blue ESV Bibles, uh, they're in the lobby tonight, so if you need one, feel free to take that. If you don't own a Bible, that is yours to keep. In order to set the tone for our message tonight, I want us to enter a very common scene. If you have been in my backyard, maybe think about my backyard this summer because I think it will kind of help set the tone for us. Imagine about a dozen or so people squeezed around a table with baked potatoes, salad, beans, brisket, vegan sausage for the vegans in the room, some bread and wine. People are laughing, people are sharing stories, and people are pausing around food. Suddenly, one of the ladies at the table, she kind of quiets everyone for a moment, and she thanks God for all that the bread and the wine represent. And she reminds us of the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. She takes the bread, she breaks off a piece, she passes it to the person next to her. The sharing of news and laughter, it kind of starts back up, but quietly the bread and the wine, they circulate throughout the group, around the table, and each person, as it's their turn, they share a word of encouragement and a prayer. Now, what's remarkable about this dinner? What's remarkable about this scene? In one sense, absolutely nothing. Nothing. I just told you hundred plus people have been sitting around tables in my backyard this summer. We see meals like this repeated around the world every single day. Yet in another sense, everything that really matters in the world is summed up in this meal as God's new world is looked upon. Peter Lidhart said this, the Lord's supper is the world in miniature. It has cosmic significance. Within it, we find clues to the meaning of all creation and all history. To the nature of God and the nature of man, to the mystery of the world, which is Christ. Though the table stands at the center, its effects stretch out to the four corners of the earth. Now, the Lord's Supper, or or communion as some refer to it, we practice that weekly here at Sojourn, as it's one of the two biblical sacraments that are instituted by Jesus while his time here on earth. The first, if you're not sure, that's baptism, and the second is his table. And that's going to be our focus tonight, and hopefully, You'll leave tonight with an expanded reasoning of why it is that we celebrate this every single week, and hopefully you'll get a better glimpse of the meaning and significance behind the table. Go ahead now and look with me at, at Luke 22. We'll start in verse 7. It says, then he came Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now take notice, it says that it had to be sacrificed. This wasn't an optional thing. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, and and really if we were to read the first few verses in chapter 7, the plot to kill Jesus is already in motion. In fact, there's already been the plan with Judas kind of scheming behind the scenes. And so Jesus desires to have his last meal with his disciples, and so he again discusses his approaching death with them as he has done previously. To set the proper context for this, The Passover meal commemorated for God's people the central storyline in the Hebrew Torah. The Hebrew Torah, if you're not familiar, it's the first five books of the Christian and Jewish scriptures. And the central event of the Old Testament is one of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. This is the story of deliverance known as Exodus. And to help Israel remember and celebrate God's faithfulness in delivering them from slavery, God instituted a meal for the Jews designed to help them worship and remember his saving work. And God commanded that every single year that his covenant people, they would come together in their homes with their families and over a meal that symbolized and memorialized the night that he passed over the sins of Israel in order to rescue them from the bonds of their oppressors. And if we think about that meal, every single detail about that meal was symbolic, given by God to help his people remember how faithful he had been to them through his rescuing grace. So there wasn't anything done by mistake in this meal. During the Passover meal, Israel also celebrated and remembered that God had promised through his prophets that there, were coming, there was coming an even greater rescuing, a day when God would rescue them from their slavery to sin, just as he had rescued them from the slavery in Egypt. And that is better known as what I call our exodus. And that's kind of what we're, we're going to celebrate tonight. So you're going to see a lot of foreshadowing back in this Passover meal that looks forward to the meal that we celebrate every single week. You see, these verses are a tempor- temporal fulfillment of God's promised plans. Everything that happened at this time, which we read about in the New Testament, was a fulfillment of what the Bible had predicted in centuries before. In Exodus 12, in the time of Moses, God required that Israel to observe what is better known as the Passover. In all the preparation and eating in these first few verses, we see Exodus 12 fulfilled or obeyed by Jesus and his followers. The first Passover meal was eaten the night before the Exodus when God liberated his people from slavery in Egypt. And so the way that this took place, I know in some ways I'm giving you a little bit of a history lesson of the Old Testament, but it sets us up for why it is that we even celebrate this. So the way this was celebrated is each family would kill a flawless lamb, and they would dab its blood, and they would place it on their door. They roasted the lamb. They ate it with unleavened bread. And so the Passover lamb rescued God's people from slavery, and it rescued them from death by dying in their place. Are you starting to notice the symbolism here? There's There's a flawless lamb. There's blood that is spilt. They eat, they eat the lamb, and, and there's unleavened bread as part of this meal. The Passover became the identity-defining practice of Israel. The Passover represents redemption embodied in a meal for a meal with God. So now, continuing the passage, if we look at verse 14, we're going to see Jesus is reclining at the table with his apostles. He's going he's to eat this meal with them, and then we're going to see the institution of the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 14. He says, And that when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so during this next scene, we are given an intimate glimpse into the final hours of Jesus with his disciples as they prepare to share a Passover meal together. And so this is where the institution of the Lord's Supper takes place. It is during this celebration of Passover that Jesus reveals God's greater story. And so it wasn't just for the sake of having a last meal. There's actually something that he's revealing during this meal to them. So what Jesus is doing is he's reminding them that the exodus and Passover meal that they were in the midst of celebrating was a mere foreshadowing of a greater exodus and a greater meal that had been promised by God. I love this picture. Listen in with me. Gathered around a table, sounds like a good name for a sermon series, Jesus affirmed to his closest friends that his coming death was inevitable. Of course, Jesus has shared this with them countless times. But this time he showed them that there was a greater exodus the people of God had been waiting for. He also informed them that the meal that they were in the midst of sharing would become an example of a greater meal that, that they would celebrate to remember this new exodus. Of course, Jesus was referring to his subsequent death, his death that's, that's coming. It's just really moments away, and his resurrection, which would take place a few days later. And this is what initiated the new exodus, the new covenant that the people of Israel had been waiting for and expectancy to see for over a millennium. So this is what the people have been waiting for and hearing about this coming Messiah who would, who would change things and, and really uh, heal the world of all of its wrongs. Now, many people have missed this, but this is what we were waiting for. This is what we had read about in the New Testament. This is the whole buildup of the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the Bible, if you've never read it, it's really one big story. Some people call this the meta narrative of Scripture, or the overarching story. It's all one big story. And so you have to really read it all from the beginning. See, it's all pointing to this key central figure in Jesus and just as Jesus had done with Israel upon their rescue Jesus left his followers with a meal to remember proclaim his work and their deliverance we of course call this meal communion or the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper there's there's multiple names that you can use for each one each one you can kind of tell the tradition somebody's from depending on what they call this meal and he instituted this meal which is why we still still celebrate this meal today to do this in remembrance of me. Now, some churches do this once a quarter. I think that's way, um, not often enough, way few times in the year. The church I grew up in, it was like once a quarter. I'm like, what is, what is this thing again? What What is this bread and this juice, and what is it we do? We, had, we do it every single week. I know the accusation is that maybe that's too often, that it that becomes just kind of, you know, part of the part of the checkbox of what you're doing, which is part of why Tonight, it just happened to fall into our series, but I wanted to do some kind of teaching on communion to really set the tone, what it is that we're doing every single week. I want there to be an understanding. It is a celebration, but I also think there's a seriousness in it that we need to make sure when we go to the table that we understand what it is that we're actually doing. And so the Lord's table looks back on the first Passover meal, but it also looks forward to the promised messianic banquet promised in Isaiah 25, where Jesus says, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so the Passover gives way to the Lord's Supper, which in turn it points forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus earnestly desired to eat this meal with his disciples for several reasons. The first, this meal represented the founding of the nation of Israel, which he had promised would come. Second, Jesus himself was now about to become the true Passover Lamb who would be sacrificed for the sins of his people, And thus, this Passover meal was the last in a long centuries of celebrating it while looking forward to the Messiah. See, once again, up to this point where where the families would would kill a a flawless lamb and spread its blood, once Jesus came, they no longer had to do that. That practice went away because Jesus came to to be that lamb for the sins of the world, for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of mankind. Third, Jesus knew this meal would richly symbolize the giving of his body and blood for his disciples to earn salvation for them. You see, we can't earn our own salvation. If you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, man, I have tried so hard, and I just can't do this. I'm walking away from it all. I'm walking away from the church. I'm walking away from the Bible. That's a great place to be. Welcome to the club. That is at that moment that God can say, hey, now you can actually come and rest in my arms. You can rest in my sacrifice for you because you've gotten to the place you realize you can't do it. Only one could do it, and that was Jesus Christ himself. And the fourth thing is that this Passover meal itself looks forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb that will take place in heaven, where all things have been made right and that we've been invited to partake in this meal. Now, Jesus institutes this meal with them starting in verse 19. It says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Greek construction translated for you is what they call a hyperplus genitive. It often has a vicarious sense where one person does something in place of someone else. As represented and predicted in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, Jesus' body will be the once for all fulfillment of the ceremony surrounding the Passover lamb as he will become the sacrificial atonement on the basis of which God will pass over the sins of the people. What I already alluded to. That once Jesus comes, there's no longer a reason to continue to kill these fallless lambs because the fallless lamb has been killed on behalf of the world. And remembering the significance of Jesus' death, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And so when we come to the table on Sunday nights, we're, we're not doing a remembrance of ourselves. We're not just doing it because we're like, well, I don't know. I started going to this church sojourn, and they just they, they rip off this bread. Sometimes it's big, fluffy bread from the bakery. Sometimes it's pita bread. Sometimes it's something else. Um, sometimes it has garlic flavoring to it, and just, we just rip it off. and I don't know, they put it in this juice kind of weird. No, we do this in remembrance of Jesus and the sacrifice that Jesus did on our behalf. And its important component of observing the Lord's Supper and of obedience is says, do this to Christ's command. This is why many evangelical Protestant churches, they've been kind of united on this idea, and there's different interpretations of this. And so we're, I'm, I'm always I'm kind of open to see the different interpretations. But some churches have said, we, we invite people who have made a personal commitment to follow Jesus to partake in the Lord's table. The reason being is they want to set the tone and the seriousness of what it is that we are doing. Because if you're doing this in remembrance of Jesus, if you're doing this in remembrance of what Jesus did on our behalf, and if you say, I don't believe in Jesus, and I don't believe that he died for me, I believe he was a lunatic, why in the world are you going to go to the table? And what is it you're doing when you're at the table? In that moment, you are just eating some flatbread, and you are just drinking some juice. It really is rid of all its significance at that moment. So I always say that all are welcome to the table, because Jesus is the one who set that table for us, but at Sojourn, we want people to have an understanding of what it is that you're participating in, because you are participating in something, something quite sacred and something that was instituted by the Lord himself. The cup in verse 20, it foreshadows the, the shedding of Jesus' blood and the absorbing of God's wrath. Which opens the way for redemption for all people through this new covenant relationship with God that was promised to the people of Israel. So it's at this shedding of Jesus' blood that we all have a chance to come and be reconciled to God. Something that none of us none of us could do. Otherwise, if Jesus hadn't come, we'd still be killing lambs and still spreading blood and still hoping that we remembered when it is that we were supposed to do it. But Jesus got rid of all of that for us as he, he absorbed all of the wrath of God. He absorbed all of our sins, all of our brokenness on himself we see a fourfold meaning of the lord's supper it reminds us of a few things we see the powerful manner of the death of jesus christ in our place for our sins second it calls christians to put our sin to death in light of the fact that jesus died for our sins and compels us to examine ourselves and repent of sin before partaking so sometimes we say you know on sunday nights it's real easy to say, okay, we're going to pray, and we're going to do these things, and you're going to hear me go through that again at the end tonight, but always, I've tried to get to a place where I'm saying, you know, take a moment, do a self-inspection. Is there something that you need to confess to God? Is there something that's going on in your heart? Is there something between somebody else? And make sure that you examine yourself, and that you allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart, and you repent before you come to the table. You know, even even on that note, I think it's kind of like washing your hands before you go eat dinner. I think we live in America, and I know at my house. We all wash hands before we eat, and it's not so that we can rid ourselves of that sin, but when you're when you're asking the Holy Spirit to to do an inspection of your heart, it's going so that God can cleanse me prior to going to the table. It's not that you can do it. It's not that you can you can do enough things, and you know, well, I've read the Bible this many minutes this week, or I memorized this many verses, like. None of that, that does matter, but none of that matters for this. It's, it's going, man, I need, to, I need to talk to God here and communicate to God, just, just like washing your hands to do these things. The third thing, it shows the unity of God's people around the person and work of Jesus. This is a unifying meal. This is why, as a church, we get to celebrate this together. That's why I love that picture at the beginning. It's like us sitting outside at my house, and that is something that we want to incorporate. Not every week, but we do want to incorporate into our gospel community, where typically we always have a meal, and it's part of that meal that we would actually Take the elements and break the bread and, and, and take the wine and say a prayer and say a word of encouragement because it is a family meal. The fourth thing is it anticipates our participation in the marriage supper of the Lamb when his kingdom comes in its fullness. And so it's really looking forward to this future dinner that will take place. And so it's, it's remembering the past, remembering what it represents, but it's also looking forward to where God is taking us. And the Lord's Supper is to be considered as participation in a family meal around a table, rather than as a sacrifice upon an altar. When we take this meal weekly, it should be an occasion when God's loving grace impacts us so that gospel takes deeper and deeper root in our lives. Communion helps us as a church stay gospel-centered, repentant, and on mission. Let me say that again. Communion, or the Lord's table, as us as a church, it helps us stay gospel-centered, helps us kind of set back to the center of what it is our life should be, it helps us be repentant, and it helps us to stay on mission. Why is it? What is it you've called us to, God? And this is why we practice it weekly. Because you and I need it. Every single week. We need that reminder of what that table represents. I'm just hoping that, we're, that we can all be clear on what it represents. Because we need this reminder. We need that gospel reminder of, of what it is. You know, we always say we can come here and we can... We can leave everything outside that door when we walk through. We can kind of hang it up and say, man, I've had a really bad week, I've had a crummy week, or I've done this wrong, or I yelled at my kids, or maybe I treated Andrea wrong, or whatever it is I did, or whatever it is you guys do." So we can leave that there. We can get centered back with God and remember what it is that he did for us. Tim Chester says the communion meal reorients life by relocating us in the story told by the word. Instead of being defined by the stories of our culture, we live as participants in God's story, and the meal points to the goal, eating in the presence of God as a celebration of his generosity and creation and salvation. We anticipate this in every meal, but especially in the Lord's Supper. Now, up until this point in the passage, we've, we've really looked at a very intimate scene around a table with Jesus and his close followers. kind of sets the tone. We know what's coming. Jesus said, I want to eat this meal with them. He kind of institutes the Lord's Supper for them. But also, we're going to see a shift in the tone of the disciples. So imagine you're sitting at this table, and that's kind of been, it's been a very intimate night so far. But what we're going to see the shift is because they still don't get it. The disciples still don't fully understand who Jesus is. And my question to us is, do we? Do we really understand? And so what we're going to see is an argument's going to break out. And the argument's going to be over who is the greatest? And so we're going to see Jesus take this opportunity raised by the dispute to teach his disciples about true greatness and what true greatness looks like. So just as membership in the kingdom of God is opposite of what humans might think, so is greatness in the kingdom of God also is the opposite. Look at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to him, said to them, "The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves." And so in conjunction with their messianic expectation of a political liberator, the disciples have this dream of status and honor and power. This is where they still don't get it because they're thinking, man, Jesus came to make the world the world right, and all of a sudden he's going to elevate us, and we're going to be the leaders and the rulers in charge. They saw, This was their shot to be at the head of the table. This was their shot to be kind of like little kings, to be the ones in charge. Jesus' response is likely when the dinner got awkward. <laughs> have you ever been at a, at a dinner where, where everything's going great, and you're, it's everything's been a relaxing evening, and maybe it's been a very intimate evening, and all of a sudden somebody says something, maybe it's like uh, an off, you know, off whatever, some kind of joke. A lot of times that's me. I'll say something that's like, oh, man, that was really awkward. I wish I hadn't said that. You kind of wish you could reel those words back in. I kind of imagine that's what happens with his close followers because they're like, man, this is great. Jesus, and all of a sudden one of them's like, well, who's the greatest? And they start bickering back and forth, and Jesus is like, all right, let me take this opportunity to teach you. And then, then you've got to be sitting there like, this is really, really awkward. Now, Jesus obviously knew that, you know, Judas was at this meal. So I'm wondering, did, you know, did the rest of them have any kind of insight? Like, well, we know it's not him because he's, he's about to sell Jesus out. So it gets awkward, and Jesus tells them, let the greatest among you – at this point, think about it. He's talking – yeah, he's talking to a ragtag group of individuals and fishermen, but these were also the, the church leaders – and people in positions of power within the church, so to speak. He's saying, you become the youngest. You get to become those who possess the least claim to rule others. Wow, how's that for putting you in your place? You're thinking, man, like, we're with Jesus. We're with the guy who's changing the entire world. We're with the one guy in history who's about to die, even though it's not taking place, but he's going to raise again to life. We're going to be in charge, and Jesus is like, hey, you get to go actually to the back of the line. You get to go back and be... The youngest and so jesus essentially boils kingdom life down to two things the first is service and the second is solidarity so service to others solidarity with others jesus is making it clear that life and leadership in god's kingdom does not look like life and leadership in the sinful world if this was a worldly level of leadership like yeah we've climbed the corporate ladder and we are now in charge We've got our our CEO, and then we've got our executives underneath there, and, and all these things. Jesus said, that's not how my kingdom works. That's not how it operates. He continues in verse 27 by saying, for who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So God's standards are diametrically opposite of the world's. And Jesus is the su- supreme example of humility by declaring, but I am among you as the one who serves. And so the blessing to his followers, the blessing to the sheep, consists of their inheritance of the Father's kingdom, the inheritance that's coming at that, the great messianic banquet, the table that he is setting for us. It's not, given not as a reward for good works, but because of the saving relationship that they have with the Father and the Son. And Jesus claims here that the messianic banquet is his table, and that the kingdom of, of God is his kingdom. And that at this thing about these claims, it would be audacious if this weren't true. Like, what kind of lunatics going around saying, like, this is my kingdom, and this is my banquet, and this is my table? If these were not true, the claims of Jesus were not true. And he says, the 12 disciples would sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes. And so we see that Jesus is the Lord of the table, but he's not the kind of the Lord the world was used to seeing. He is the kind of Lord who wraps a towel around his waist and he washes the feet of others because he is among us as one who serves. This is the kind of king that we worship, one who is the great servant. You've probably heard this expression if you've been around church very long, but we serve because he first served us. We love because he first loved us. And that, that is really the posture when it boils down. When we do the things in our community, there's times I don't necessarily want to do them, if I'm completely honest, other times I love doing them. You know, going to the concerts may not be your thing and doing a kid's camp may not be your thing and picking up trash in Alberta may not be your thing and cleaning up graffiti and doing those things, but that's not why we do it. We do it because we were first served and this is an opportunity to serve our community and to love our community as we build bridges and inroads into the life of the community to ultimately not point to us, not to point to sojourn, but to only point to Jesus. And have you ever wondered why a meal? Like, Jesus could have done anything. Like, he could have left it and said, remember me this way. But, like, why is it a, a meal is what he left for us? I believe there's five, five reasons that we see. The first is that the meal is an act of remembrance. In Luke 22:19, 19, which we just read a few minutes ago, he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so the Lord's Supper is a call to God to act in keeping with his covenant by forgiving us, He's accepting us and welcoming us to the table through his finished work, through the finished work of Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. The second reason is the meal is an act of community. In 1 Corinthians 10:17 it says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so the Lord's Supper declares the death of Jesus, not just in the symbolism of bread and wine, but in the community created by the cross. And that's the community that we've been invited into. The third reason is that the meal is an act of dependence. In Luke 4.4, 4, it says, Man shall not live by bread alone. Every time we eat a meal, it is a reminder of our dependence on God, the communion meal included. And so this is why, I remember the shift took place for me in the last couple of years, which I know that, that may sound funny. And if, you've, if you go out to eat with me at all, you may, don't call me on this, because you might be like, Matt, a lot of times you just jump in and you start eating, and you don't pray before you eat. And so that, while that is true, what I do like is that symbolism, and sometimes if, you, if I have prayed with you, you've probably heard me say it, like, God, thank you for this small reminder, this small glimpse that you are ultimately our provider, and that we are dependent on you. And so every time you, you, you take that meal, this evening, for those of us who are going to sit around a table and take a meal, like, that is a small reminder for the dependence that we have on God, for, for the food that we eat that's physically in front of us, but then for, for ultimately our salvation. The fourth reason, the meal is an act of participation. 1 Corinthians 10.16 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, it is not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So through the communion meal, salvation becomes a subjective reality for us afresh. And the fifth reason is the meal is an act of formation. 1 Corinthians 11.26 it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the Lord's Supper, in, in many ways, it's a drama in which we are active participants. If we're part of, of taking, taking in this meal, it's, it's something that we get to play out every single week for our church here. And so hopefully you have seen tonight that the meal we participate in weekly, it's not just another item on our list, but something that we need. Something we need is a reminder to be active participants at this table because of what Christ has done, that it re-centers us in the gospel as we go and get ready to leave this place and send out into our rest of our weeks. And so as a way of response, we have a few ways to respond to Jesus this evening. The first, simply worship through song. There's many ways to worship, but that is one of them, by lifting our voices and singing songs of praise to Jesus. The second way of response is by praying. Maybe some of you in here need to confess with your mouth. Maybe you've never confessed Jesus as your Lord. And maybe tonight something clicked. Or maybe there's something you need to repent of. Take this time. I mean, this is, this is part of the evening. We've, really, we've got the building until I lock the door. So I can stay as long as we need to. <laughs> Take time. Soak in the presence of Jesus. And seek the only one who was able to set the table for us. The third way is giving. If you consider sojourn in your church, consider sojourn in your home, we ask that you give generously of your time, your talent, and your treasure as an act of worship. And that's just one other way that, that we see we're able to be participants in this community that God is forming. And then finally, through what we looked at tonight, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. And so as a as we move into our time of response, similar to what we looked at, this is a family meal, and we talk about here our values of gospel, family, mission. So in that family piece, we say this is a family meal that helps recenter our lives as family. You know, as I think about family, is it is it perfect Monday through Friday, twenty four seven? No, there's there's a lot of drama. I'm about to go back and visit my family in North Carolina. And if I'm completely honest, I'm looking, man, they're probably going to listen to this too. I'm really excited about <laughs> going to see them on one hand. And then there's some other drama maybe that I'm not looking forward to. Sorry, mom and dad. I love you. Um, and so that's just real life. And so as a family, as a church family, it's the same way. There's going to be times, that there's going to be conflict. And we're going to be like, you know what? I'm not so sure about this. There's going to be times that, that I'm definitely going to disappoint you and that you're going to disappoint me. But this is where you get to go, you know what, this meal helps us recenter that relationship that God is calling us to his family to say, man, we can forgive one another. We can be reconciled with one another because we're not God, but God has allowed it to happen this way. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to read Luke 22:19 19 through 20 for us once again. It says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so I always think about that verse when I physically rip the piece of bread off. as that Jesus says to, to break this bread. And so as you break off that piece of bread, your little, your little morsel of bread, as you break that off, remember that, that, that Jesus broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. So do it in remembrance of Jesus. Verse 20, and likewise, the cup after it had eaten, saying, "This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood." And so as you dip your bread into the wine, to be reminded that this is Jesus' blood that was shed on behalf of us so that we could have a way to be reconciled to God. Maybe you need to get clean on the inside tonight before you do the outward sign of communion. Take that space. Always say that I'm available in the back if you need to talk about something, if you're not sure about something, if you disagree with something I said, or if you just need to pray, I'm available. If you say, I'd rather not talk to you because I don't know you, or I just don't want to talk to you, there's cards in the back. Fill that out. I would love to be praying for you this week. So let me pray for us. We will respond accordingly, and then Mandy and Tyler will come back up and lead us in worship through song. God, we do come to you this evening. And thank you for the privilege of getting to worship you. God, thank you for the opportunity to look at a probably familiar passage for most of us tonight. But hopefully, God, we got to see it in a different light. Hopefully, we got to see the symbolism of looking back at the Old Testament and the Passover and and really looking forward to what this meal means and the institution that you left us with this meal and what it means every single week and why it is that we've decided to do it weekly here at Sojourn. God, as it re-centers us on the gospel. God, I think sometimes we're like vehicles that are out of alignment. We leave this place and we're re-centered. And whether it's Monday morning or Wednesday afternoon or sometime between now and next week when we gather as a body, inevitably we all get off balance. And it's like we're, we're, le- we're leaning to the left or we're leaning to the right. But, God, we get a chance every single week to come back in here to worship you corporately, to repent of our sins, to focus on you, and to get re-centered back into the gospel. And so, God, may we, as we move forward as a church, may we look at this table, as we, may we look at this meal as a rebalancing of our lives individually and corporately as we focus on you and invite others to take a journey of learning what it means to follow you faithfully here in this city. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Sojourn, the table is open. Prayer is available. The time is yours. Respond accordingly.